vicissitudes of life. But Father, still yet we are thankful. We know that we have victory and happiness and perfect peace. Yes, even holiness if we are clothed in your righteousness. Now, Lord, do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Hide me now behind the cross. And I pray that every word that is spoken may be straight from your lips to this congregation's ears. Father, when it's all said and done, as always, my prayer is that no one would remember the messenger. Not even so much the message, oh God, but the master that is in the message. We need you to show up today. We need you to speak a word. We are thirsty and hungry and desperate for something from you. Do not disappoint us today. Speak clearly, oh God. Remove all fear from me. Loosen my tongue that I may speak the word that you have given me with boldness and power. Help me, oh God, to cry aloud and spare not and to not be afraid of faces or opinions or accolades or kudos. Let those go to Calvary today. But let your word speak clear. And oh God, we'll be careful. Give you all praise, all honor, and all glory. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Turn with me to Judges. Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. When you have it, say, let's eat. Mm. Word of God says here, again, hmm, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, Woman, you are both barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now, see to it that you drink no wine or any other unfermented drink, that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor. But the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now I'll go to the last chapter of Judges. <clears throat> 21. In the very last verse there, 25. The Bible says this. <clears throat> In those days, Israel had no king. And so everyone did as they saw fit. 
Now, there are two ways that you can look at the book of Judges. You can either look at it as a book of power. In other words, this book chronicles the history of God time and time again, delivering his people from their enemies. And the stories are actually very interesting as well. In fact, it's probably one of the most, if not the most, interesting books in the Bible. Have you taken time to really read the book of Judges? Have you read the story of Ehud, a left-handed assassin, who was very rare during that time that anyone would be left-handed, and because he was left-handed, he attached his sword to his right thigh. And so when he went in to see the heathen king, they did not check him on his right side because they assumed that every assassin or anybody who would come to try and harm the king would have their sword on their left thigh. Ehud went into the king's courtroom. And there the Bible says that he took his sword and rammed it so far into the king's stomach that the handle and his hand sunk into his bowels. And hours passed by before his servants even knew that he was dead. <clears throat> what about the story of Shamgar? The Bible records that this man took an ox gold, which is nothing more than a glorified stick, and was able to beat up and destroy 600 men at one time. But what about Deborah, a woman, <clears throat> whom God used to judge the people of Israel for many years and used her in battle as well. But what about the end of the story where a woman takes the heathen king who comes into her tent, takes out a hammer and a tent peg and nails him through his temple into the ground? <clears throat> what about the story of Gideon? Bible records that God cut down this man's army from 32,000 to 300, and he was still able to win against all the Canaanite forces during that time. Yes. You can look at it as a book of power, or you can look at it as a book of defeat. Hmm. In fact, one preacher says that this book is actually the panorama of defeat. Because every so often when we flip through the pages, these words pop up on the page again. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And there is a very complete cycle in the book as well. The Israelites would sin and disobey God. And God would punish them by sending a heathen nation to take over them and to oppress them. And then they would get sad and they would cry to God. And God would send a judge and the judge would deliver them. But then they would sin again. And God would punish them and they would repent and God would send a deliverer. But then they would sin again and God would punish them and they would repent and God would deliver them all over again. So really, there it is. You can look at this book as a book of power showing how God is delivering his people, a book of judges. Or you can look at it as a book of judgment where God is calling out his people on the basis of whether they are doing what he really asked them to do. Hmm. At the end of the day, and I'm going to take my time today. Hmm. At the end of the day, this book is the story of a deteriorating nation. 
a nation that is crumbling because it lacks focus, it lacks standards, it lacks uh, principles, and it is double-minded to the point that you find the people of God compromising over and over and over again. Help us, Lord. Really today, when I look in my mind's eye, I could rightly say that our nation may be deteriorating as well. And I'm not talking about the nation of America. Neither am I talking about the black race or the black nation, even though both of those are equally crumbling at the same time. No, today we've got to talk about the Christian nation. And how this thing is breaking down right before our eyes. We are in danger, brothers and sisters, listen to me carefully, of losing the main thing that makes us Christian. And that is our sense of urgency. Did you know that when the Adventist church started, it started as a movement. People who came into the church literally thought that Christ was coming that day. <laughs> we were not just the people that herald that Jesus was coming. We were the first people that talked about the imminence of Christ's coming. In other words, he is coming soon. Israelites neglected the urgency of preserving their Christian nation and at the same time preparing people for the coming of Christ. They neglected both of them. They did not teach their children about God. Listen to me, please, listen to me. The next generation then forgot about God and worshipped other gods time and time again. And thereby, the mission of God and conquering the land was absolutely lost. There was a time when the mission of the Adventist church was very simple. Jesus is coming. Everybody get ready. <clears throat> Nothing else needed to be said. Christ is on his way. And if we are not ready, we will not go with him. No preacher was preaching anything else. Christ is coming to get his people. If we do not get ready, we will not go with him. Just like the Israelite parents did not teach their children the fear of the Lord, I feel like we are in danger as well. Just like the children forgot who God was, I feel like we're in danger in this area as well. And just like the Israelite nation forgot their God-given mission, I feel like the Christian kingdom, and especially the Christian church, is in danger of not fulfilling what God has asked us to do. And for me, there is not a better story in the book of Judges that illustrates this and highlights it better than the story of Samson. Bear with me, folks. Hmm. Story of Samson, believe it or not, has a message for Christian parents today has a message for Christian young people, and at the same time, a message for the Christian church as well. Shall we begin? Hmm. Now, we all know the story of Samson. Truth is, he's the superhero of the Old Testament. Samson was most likely the strongest man that ever lived, and funny enough, it really seems like 
Samson did not need faith to move mountains. By his natural strength alone, there was nothing that he could not move. And we are prone in our mind's eye to think of Samson as a tall and imposing figure with bulging biceps and triceps and maybe even pectorals that may make any women in the audience today blush. Amen. But the fact is, the Bible does not necessarily say that. And the truth is, Samson may have been an average looking man of average stature. What was so significant about him is that the Bible says at times, help us, Lord, the spirit of God would move so heavily upon Samson that his physical body was able to accomplish things that would defy the laws of gravity and science could not explain. God created him to be an impeccable specimen and he called him for a special purpose. And because his calling was great, his nurturing needed to be great as well. So in the text, when the angel came to his mother, who was both barren and childless, she was told that while Samson was in the womb, she could not drink any uh, fermented drink. She could not eat anything unclean because Samson was going to be a Nazarite from the womb and fully dedicated to God. And here is a message for Christian parents today, and I pray that you are listening. Such should be the case for Christian children as well. Help me now, Lord. When a child is born to a Christian parent, no, 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 let me back up. When a mother knows that she is with child and there is a baby boy or girl that is growing inside of her womb, even from the womb, they ought to be fully dedicated to the Lord. I'm not talking about what we do down here where we sprinkle a little oil on them and we have a little prayer and we make everything cute and nice. No, no, no. A verbal agreement and contract with God should be made about that child. That no matter what, my child will be taught of the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Y'all ain't with me today. Book of Judges tells us that Israel began to falter mainly because the younger generation grew up not knowing the Lord or what he had done. They had not been taught about God, and so they compromised over and over again. And brothers and sisters, I'll tell you this today. All it takes for the Christian kingdom and for the Christian nation and for the Christian church to crumble right before our eyes is for good Christian parents to do nothing. saying that says the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You can have good intentions for your children and still not teach them the word of God. Oh, y'all, help me, Lord. Help me. Okay. Okay. Here here we go. Christian children need to live and grow up in a home where God is the standard. No, 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 no. You're not following me today. That sounds too cliche for me. Let me help you out. Let me help you out. I did not say they need to grow up in a home that has good ethics. No, 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 no. I did not say they need to grow up in a home where good behavior is the standard and good grades. No, no, no. They need to grow up in a home where God is the standard. His word is the test 
of faith and practice. Everything that he says is what I should be doing, not just good behavior. I'm thankful that little Johnny doesn't get in trouble in school. We praise God for that. No, 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 no. I want little Johnny to be saved. The home should be a place where young people know that in there, God will be worshipped. Take time and read Adventist Home. Hmm. Sister White says there that the first work of a Christian home is to make abundantly sure that the spirit of Christ abides there. And she goes so far as to say that our homes today should be a place where angels love to come and visit. Well, Let me throw this in for free. Maybe it's high time as well. We start to applaud our kids for what they do for God. We have no problem applauding young people for what they do in athletics. And I praise God for that, that they're using their God-given talents in athletics to praise God or they're doing well in school and they're making good grades or little Johnny has good behavior. But maybe it's high time that we are intentional about affirming them about what they do for God. When we're downstairs in Friday Night Lights at the cafe, when we have open mic, the kids can tell you, my heart leaps within me. And I am literally ecstatic when I see them go up there, take the mic and sing a song for God, read a poem, play an instrument. And I don't care if they're off key. I don't care if they've forgotten the words. I could care less. I am thankful that they are there when they could be anywhere else in the world. The other day, little Deshaun came up to me pulling on my coattail and said, Pastor Cokes and Pastor Cokes. And I said, yes, Deshaun. Deshaun said, Pastor Cokes, I know my memory verse. I said, really? I literally stopped in my tracks and gave him all of my attention while he recited his memory verse, gave me the scriptural passage. And I tell you today, if I had cash in my wallet, I would have given him a significant gift. I applaud young people for what they do for God. Well, I can tell you today, had it not been for people in my church back home in Charleston, South Carolina, who affirmed me time and time again, I tell you the truth. There were many times in my life when I only not only wanted to leave ministry, but also wanted to leave the church. But there was always some older lady in the church who would put a cash deposit in the crease of her palm. And when she would leave, she would place it and leave it in my hand and just encourage me to keep on going. And I wish it were true in the Christian church as well. I wonder if Christian parents are really telling their kids, little Johnny, I'm so happy that you're in church today. I know that you could be doing anything else. I'm so happy that you're at least trying to listen to the word. Did you get anything out of it? Johnny, I'm so happy for you that you're going to Sabbath school and I praise God for you. When will we learn to affirm kids for what they are doing for God? One time in Somerville, Pastor Ghost preached there at that church. One of my first sermons, and 
There was a lady there of the Caucasian persuasion. She listened to my sermon, and I guess it was the first time that she had heard somebody my age speak before from the pulpit. And I remember that she came to me and spoke to me, and she said, son, my husband and I have just decided that we are going to support you in your ministry. I did not know what she meant, but I'm telling you today that when I went to Oakwood, I received a check in the mail every month from her to encourage me to keep on going. And young people need that. All we do is affirm them for the things that they do in the world, and there's nothing inherently wrong for that. But when are we going to take out time and thank God for what they are doing for him? Okay. Well, Samson's mother did not drink wine or eat anything unclean because the angel said he would be a Nazarite from the womb. And we can imagine this story now, picture it in your mind's eye, that all throughout his young life, his parents would have rehearsed to him the miraculous nature of his birth and his special calling. They had to explain to him why he could not cut his hair like other young boys and why he could not even go near a dead body or eat anything that came from the grapevine. According to God's standard, get this, according to God's standard, Samson had a virtually perfect upbringing. But somewhere along the way, he succumbed to the lust of the world. He succumbed to temptation time and time again. And at many points, he forgot his real calling. Now, there's also a message of encouragement for you parents today. In this message, (laughs) not only should we be raising our kids according to God's standard, but truth be told today, Sometimes, no matter what you do to children, or how much you teach them, or how much time you spend with them, children are likely to go astray. Amen. Sometimes, no matter what you do, or how well you train them, children grow up and they decide to make their own choice. And so it is unfair for us some days when we see a wayward child in the world, to automatically assume that he did not have a proper upbringing or that his environment was subpar or he did not have the best training in schools or his mommy or his daddy did not love him enough. No, 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 no. Sometimes children just go astray. Read the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Bible says he had everything that he could ever possibly want in the household, but somewhere along the way in his mind, he rose up and said, I want to do things my own way. And children are like that as well. Despite what they've been taught, they choose their own way and their own path. But then you may be asking the question, but preacher, what about that text in Proverbs 22, verse 6, where it says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. I'm so glad you asked. Because that text is not saying that when he is old, he will not depart from it. So much as it is saying that when he is old, it will not depart from him. In other words, what you have poured into him will not leave him. 
because God's word cannot return unto him void. And here is the thing, brothers and sisters. When they grow up in the world and they have to make a choice between God and everything else, they will literally, help me God, they will literally have to fight God and wrestle God to the ground and then take their finger and stick it in his nose and say, God, I do not want you in my life in order for them to choose anything else. And I feel like today that is the role of any good Christian parent today. Your job is to make it as difficult as possible for your kids to choose anything but God. They should, it should be a struggle for them. It should not be easy. They should have to fight God to the ground because of the word that you have implanted in their minds and the time and worship that you have spent with them. It should not be an easy choice for them. Amen. <laughs> they ought to see that through family devotion and through your example that the power of God is not a game. Amen. Remember one time couple of our friends rode with me and my parents in the back of our van. We were coming from the fair one night. You know how young boys are. We started joking around and talking about girls and acting a fool or whatever. And somehow the conversation switched. We began to talk about people in the church. <clears throat> and I remember we began to pick on one old lady in the church in particular. We began to talk about the way she walks and the way she dresses and her hair and things of that nature. And my father was in the front seat listening to everything we had to say. And I remember when we got out of that van that night, he took all of us, every last one of us, <laughs> in that back room. And he opened up his Bible to 2 Kings. And he told the story of Elijah. How Elijah was walking one day, the prophet of God. And there were some young boys who began to make fun of him and said, go up, thou bald head, get out of here. And then when he finished the story, he told us that the prophet called down a curse on the young boys. <laughs> and two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled 40 of them. And then he took his finger and stuck it in the air and told us, don't you ever talk against God's people again. You will have manners. You will do what God says. And I remember from that point, the fear of God was in my heart. Mm. And he used the word to do it. Young people ought to know that every decision that they make has consequences for their life. And they do not get away with anything. You ought to be honest with them about your life as well. When the time is ready, tell them what you have done. Explain to them the holes that you have fell in so they won't fall into the same thing. Too many times we have parents who are afraid. Tell their kids what they have done. Tell them the mistakes that they made when they need to hear it. Friday night lights should not necessarily have to exist. It has to exist because the kids don't have an open forum where they can talk to their parents about the things that they're going through. Amen. Amen. My father put the fear of God in my heart. Thank you, Lord. So much so that some days when I would get a certain thought in my mind, I was shaken to my core. Hmm. That God was going to punish me or mess my life up. But to this day, I am thankful to God 
because I know I would not be here. And many mistakes that I wanted to make with my life were avoided because of the counsel of my father and the word. Well, it's a sacred duty that parents are entrusted with. And you ought not take that lightly. And I will tell you today from my studies, from reading the Bible, as well as the Adventist home and other books in the spirit of prophecy, God will hold parents. He will hold you accountable for what you have taught your children. You will not escape. <laughs> Unless you are intentional about telling them the good news of Jesus Christ and letting them know that Christ died for their sins, you will be held up on charges. You remember that text, don't you? What the Bible says that if you should hinder any one of these young ones from coming to me, it'd be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and to jump in the middle of the sea. God does not play games with this thing. We should not either. Well, let's move. God is calling for Christian parents today. Would you say amen? amen? Christian parents like Manoah and his wife, the mother and father of Samson, who the angel, when they, when they met the angel, they asked him, uh, angel, how shall we order the child? What shall we do to make sure that everything that we do in his life is in keeping with the standards of God and who made sacrifices to ensure that Samson was dedicated to the Lord? God is calling today for real Christian parents to stand up and take up the mantle and teach children what they ought to know in the world. We should not rely on one day a week. When they come to church, we just ship them off to Sabbath school and we ship them off to the programs of the church, hoping that some way, uh, in some roundabout way, they will receive the gospel of Jesus Christ when you have them seven days a week. Amen. Amen. And most families don't even have worship in the home. Your children should know. That when the sun begins to set in the western sky, it's time for worship. Help me, God. Verse 5, verse 5, 13, verse 5. Not going to keep you long. Here we go. Here we go. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead. In delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Young people, listen up. There's a message for Christian parents. There's a message for Christian young people as well. Listen to this. Sole purpose of Samson's birth was so that he could deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines and turn their hearts back to God. Although this brother did great things with his strength, and you can read the story for yourself. We're not going to go into it. Most of you know it. And his name is actually listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. Samson is also an important example of unfulfilled potential. Though he did great things for God, it is staggering when we step back for a moment and begin to think about what he actually could have accomplished for God if he had stayed true to his calling. Ellen White says that with his strength, his natural strength alone, and what God had endowed him with, he could have wiped the Philistines off the face of the earth and we would have never heard their names again. 
when Samson should have been delivering his people, young people, listen up, he was seeking after their women. When he should have been fighting, he was literally sleeping with the enemy. When he should have been focused on his Nazarite vow, he broke every standard that God had given him in his life. The spirit of prophecy and the Bible is clear that he also drank wine when he knew he was not supposed to. He ate out of the carcass of a dead lion and he slept with the enemy and he allowed his hair to be cut. When he could have been a pillar of truth and justice, help us Lord. He instead became a martyr by his own actions. And at that time when he should have been standing strong for the principles of God, he was too busy feeding his own appetite and his own ego. But God had called him, did he not? He was a miracle child. And for the most part, even though God used him, his purpose was not completely fulfilled. And when God wanted to make Samson extraordinary, this brother settled for what was just enough. Now, young people today, it ought to bother you and scare you to death that God has purposed you for something great in your life. He has literally written the script for your life, for what you are to become. It should scare you to death today that unless you serve the Lord, you will never reach your full potential. Mm You will never be what God wants you to be. You will always be unsatisfied. You will always be unhappy because you have not placed your hands in the hands of the master. Samson is a perfect example of unfulfilled potential. Some of you are destined by the blueprint of God to be doctors and lawyers and physicians and world-class professionals. But I tell you today, you will not get there unless you serve the Lord. That's just plain fact. I can't put it any more simpler than that. Some of you have great potential. God has literally written your script and endowed you with gifts and talents that most other folks do not have. It would be a shame before God today if you waste your talent by not dedicating your life to the Lord. Some of you will miss out on what God has for you because you did not seek God. And let me share with you my greatest fear. And I've shared this before on the camping trip I shared it. My greatest fear is that I will not reach my full potential. My fear is that I'll be laying on my deathbed one day, thinking over my life, and the Lord will speak to me as he often does and tell me, John, there was much more that I have required of you. There was much more you could have done with your life. That thing scares me to death, man. Mm. (sighs) That God would look at me. And tell me, son, if you had just followed me, I would have allowed you to ride upon the high places of the earth. If you had just done what I asked you to do, I would have filled your belly. You would have never been in one and you would have always been satisfied. John, if you had just trusted me, I would have let you know that I have cattle on a thousand hills and you would have never been in need of anything. It will hurt me to my core to end up at the end of my days knowing that I could have done so much more. Young people, don't fall into that trap. Samson is a story of unfulfilled potential. Get your life's instructions from God. And I know what most of you are even saying right now. 
well, pastor, I've got it together. My life is okay. You know, it's cool. I'm chilling. I'm great. I'm not, I am not necessarily need the Lord like that. I don't need to be a preacher or anything like that. And I'm not saying that today. But what I am saying is that most of us are living on the providential will of God. Let me explain what I mean. God has three wills. How many did I say? Three. He has his perfect will. God has an ideal for each and every one of us, a place that where he wants us to go. God has something perfect in his mind that he wants all of us to be, an ideal. And if we reach that spot, God will be happy. But then God also has his permissive will. His permissive will is basically free will. God has his perfect will, but if we choose not to follow that will, God has a permissive will that allows us to do whatever we want to do with our life. Because God is love and he believes in free will, he allows us to choose for ourselves. But not only does God have perfect will and permissive will, he also has providential will. Which basically means that when we choose wrong and we go astray, sometimes God acts like a GPS and redirects us back to the spot where he wants us to be. But the fact is, many of us are living on that providential will, and it will not always last. What we need to be striving for is that perfect will of God. God has an idea for us, an ideal woman that he wants us to marry. Praise God. Mm. An ideal career that he wants us to have. An ideal life that he wants us to live. And unless we put our hands in the master, we will never receive it. We should not wake up every morning sleepy and grouchy and, and just hung over and not prepared for the day. Some days we ought to wake up in the morning exclaiming carpe diem and ready to seize the day because we know what God has purposed us for. And it pains me today to see so many young people wasting their lives away on the foolishness of the world when God has given you so much potential. Let's move. Well, there's also a message in this story for the Christian church. Buckle your seatbelts now. Hmm. Samson was a selfish person. I read this story over and over again. You would think that somebody of his strength would immediately go out and conquer the Philistines and the enemy and claim the land for God. But that's not what happened, brothers and sisters. That's not what we find. In fact, I looked at every time that Samson fought the Philistines. And what I realized is, is that the only time Samson got mad enough to fulfill his mission is when he was personally or directly affected by it. He lost the riddle, and because he lost that riddle, he was upset. He went and killed 30 men and got their clothes. Because they burned his fiancée and her family, that's when he fought the Philistines. They tried to make him a prisoner, and so he killed a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass. And all the other times... When he could have been delivering the people, he was literally not doing anything. It was not until his strength left him, listen to me closely, and they gouged out his eyes and put him in the Philistine temple that he finally asked God to help him to do what God had asked him to do in the first place. But all the other times, 
The only time he got mad enough to fight the enemy is when his personal preferences were affected, when he should have been looking out for the nation and the mission of God, he was too concerned about himself. And here's the point I want to make today. Help us, Lord. One of the main reasons that the church can't move forward the way God wants them to is because we have too many people in the church who are way too concerned about their personal preferences, their opinions, and what they want the church to be rather than the mission that God has given us. And I know I'm telling the truth today. They are more concerned about the music than people getting saved. <laughs> they are more concerned about how the young girls in the church dress than that somebody has come to the Lord today and now they want to give their life completely to him. In almost every church, we have people who are more hinderers of the gospel than helpers of it. Only time they get involved in anything is when something happens that they don't like and it personally bothers them. And I've surveyed the church in my limited time on this earth. And I've discovered that we have a few types of people in the church as well. In the church, we have terrorists. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Terrorists. <clears throat> we have people, because they don't like the way the music is being played, they don't like the way that the pastor dismissed their department or what they want to do. We have people that will not leave the church and they won't try to make it better. It's almost like they strap a bomb to their chest and try to blow up the whole church. Because they don't like the way things are run. But not only do we have terrorists, brothers and sisters, we also got politicians in the church. We've got people, not in this church, other churches. <laughs> We've got people in the church who are only concerned about their campaign and their department and their goal. And they feel like if the program that they are trying to put on is not succeeding, then the church is not succeeding. Yeah. What? <laughs> not only do we have terrorists and not only do we have politicians, Brothers and sisters, we also got snitches in the church. People, they only get mad when they see other people doing wrong. But they never take time to look in the mirror at themselves to see what they are doing. They love to come to the pastor and other people and tell people about what other people are doing. But they are not so much concerned about the mission of the church. Oh, we got selfish people in the church. If you did not know. <laughs> so it stands that we have a church full of people that are fighting their own battles and waging their own wars for what they think is important. And nobody is really focused on the mission. And the mission is simple. Jesus is coming. Everybody get ready. Oh, help me, Lord. We cannot and we will not accomplish the mission that God has given us when everybody is going around fighting their own battles. We are so disconnected and so disjointed 
that we are an unsuccessful fellowship of believers when we cannot lay down our personal preferences for the greater goal of the gospel. It's a shame before God. People take music and other things more seriously than seeing somebody come to Christ and their life being changed completely. To see someone put down a cigarette or or to put down the bottle or marry that young girl that they're cohabitating with or, or give their life to God completely. It's a shame before God that we are so focused on things. Hmm. Listen to this. Help me, Lord. Christ did not pray that we would all go out and fight our own battles. He never said that. What he prayed was that we all would be one. He has already given us the mission. He has already given us the directive. We are wasting our time if we are constantly nitpicking at things that at the end of the day have no value for salvation. None whatsoever. I cannot believe that in 2012, we're still hung up on music and drums. It makes no sense to me. I cannot understand that we would make a big deal out of jewelry. I said it. I cannot understand why we are so focused on so many doctrines and so many things that are outside of the circle of salvation when we should be concerned on whether people are ready for the coming of Christ. It does not make any sense. Oh, help me, Lord. Oh, boy. When we should be rallying around the bloodstained banner, most people are nitpicking at insignificant issues that have nothing to do with salvation. Message of Samson was clear. His purpose was specific. He was to deliver Israel from the Philistines. It was that clear. It was that simple. And here's a text at the end of his life that to me is the scariest text in the Bible. The Bible says that after he had played the fool with Delilah so many times and after he had succumbed to temptation more and more and more in his life. The Bible says after Delilah had cut his hair that day, she told him that the Philistines would be upon him. And the Bible says Samson got up as he usually would to fight him because he was personally affected. But the Bible says he did not know, help me Lord, that the spirit of God had left him. Whoo! I see Lord. To me that is the scariest text in the Bible. That you could be so long with the Lord. And after succumbing to temptation over and over again, God is no longer with you. And you do not even know it. And as I look at the church today, what I believe is that we will waste so much time focusing on insignificant issues that one day we will look around and God will be nowhere to be found. You can read the story in Ezekiel. God got so fed up with his people because they were not doing what he asked them to do that he literally packed up his bags and walked out of the temple. feel like today as well that we've somewhat false advertised. We tell people that God is here. 
But when they get here, they do not find God at all. What they actually find is a carefully detailed list of rules that they have to follow before they can be saved. And it should not be so that we have to make such a high wall for people to climb over before they can come to Christ. God says, all of you who are thirsty, come to me and drink. If you have no money, come. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It covers everybody. My fear today is that we church folk will be so enamored with our own opinions and preferences. One day we'll look around. God will be nowhere to be found. Ellen White concludes the story of Samson like this. I'm done. I'm done. She says, physically, Samson was the strongest man upon the earth. But in self-control, integrity, and firmness, he was one of the weakest of men. And when I hold up his story, next to the Christian kingdom as it stands today, there are amazing parallels there. Not only should parents, like his mother and his father, Manoah, and his wife, teach their kids about the goodness of God and remind them ever so often that God loves them enough that he wants to see the best for them. And not only is this story a lesson in unfulfilled potential for our young people, but it is a very clear message to our church today. That if we are fighting our own battles, we are missing God has given us one directive and one mission to seek and to save those that are lost. If we are fighting vehemently for anything else, we're missing the point, brothers and sisters. And we are wasting our time. And let me tell you one thing that we think. We don't come to this place to do church we come here to worship God and there is a fundamental difference between the two we don't come here to make sure that the liturgy of the service goes according to plan we come here to praise God for what he has done for us in our lives we do not come here to make sure that everybody is dressed appropriately in their best suits. We don't come here to make sure that we uphold the Adventist church. If the Adventist church were to crumble around us today, it would make no grievous gap in history. The main thing is that God would be praised. As I read this story this week, God told me, son, you're missing the point, man. And the whole church is missing the point. And just like Israel began to deteriorate when they fell away from what God had asked them to do, our Christian kingdom is in trouble as well, as well as our Christian church. 
And unless we get back on track and we begin to move forward the way God wants us to do. Some of us might not even be saved. Father, today, I hope I have made it clear as I possibly could. Lord, we first ask you to forgive us, oh God, for waging our own battles in the church. Help us, oh Lord, not to focus on those things that only directly affect us and make us mad or get us upset. Help us to get mad at the things that get you mad and to love the things that you love and to hate the things that you hate. Father, we know that some of the things we get mad about, you could not care less. So help us, oh Lord, to do what you have asked us to do. The directive is clear. The mission is simple. You are coming soon to save us from our sins. And may we all be ready when you come. Now, Lord, look to this flock today in this congregation. The way we have faltered, help us, Lord, to do exactly what you have asked. We need you. And I thank you, Lord. Be with our young people, God. They have so many gifts, God. So many talents. Lord, I pray that you would make it difficult for them. Give them no rest. Give them no sleep. Give them no peace in their life. Till they come wholeheartedly to you. And we'll be careful to give you all praise, honor, and glory. We love you today, O oh Lord. May this story forever be a lesson in our minds of what we ought to do. We love you today. In Jesus' name, amen.